Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 845. Page 845 in the pew Bible, we're going to be looking at Mark 10, verses 1 through 12 this morning. Before we pray and read our passage this morning, a big thank you uh, to everyone who volunteered and helped out at Vacation Bible School this past week. It was a great week. Uh, It went very, uh, very well. A lot of good conversations with kids, uh, interaction with parents and grandparents, uh, teaching about the value of life. Uh, We looked at several different passages uh, from the Psalms, uh, from Genesis, of course, about how God created us male and female in His image. And uh, just just a wonderful week, a fun week of Vacation Bible School and capped off uh, our offering project was to help the Alternatives Pregnancy Center, which is a local pregnancy center, much like Alpha's Women's Center, uh, but they operate in Waterloo and Waverly in the Cedar Valley area. And uh, I told the kids on Sunday night, if they got to $500, that they would get to pie Pastor James and I in the face. And they took that challenge to heart. And uh, Eden, every time she brought a nickel, said, are we at 500 yet? Um, they'd made it to 500 by, I think it was Tuesday. And so I upped it. I said, if you get to 750, we're going to have a mysterious third person uh, who will get a pie in the face. And they, they said, absolutely. So uh, we don't have the official total yet, but it's close to $800 that the kids raised for the Alpha Women's Center. And uh, I asked the kids who they thought the surprise person would be, and a lot of different names. One was Jeremy Carpenter. And I thought that, but sadly, no. It was John Niederhoff, the resident game guy for Vacation Bible School. And uh, our wives lovingly agreed to Pius in the face. What a wonderful ministry that was on their behalf. Uh, But we had a great time at Vacation Bible School. So thank you to all of you who helped out in different ways for the week. Let's pray, and then we'll read our passage this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that bought our freedom. Lord, we were enslaved to sin Lord, we were your enemies. We were in rebellion against you, but yet through your grace and your mercy, through your son, Jesus Christ, we are redeemed. We are set free from the slave market of sin. We are purchased, we are bought, and we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, that doesn't mean we're perfect, but rather as you look at us, you see the righteousness of Christ. And we are indwelt with the Spirit Lord, your Holy Spirit that helps us live our lives for you by empowering us to live a righteous life, to fight sin and to convict us of it and to encourage others. Lord, may we submit ourselves to your word this morning and your spirit, realizing that these words are not suggestions. They aren't antiquated. They aren't just a passing idea, but they are truth from the very beginning. Lord, they are your words And therefore, they are to be trusted and heeded and obeyed. Lord, give us humility. Give us grace. Give us patience. Lord, work in us to make us more like Jesus through the preaching of your word this morning. pray in your son's name. Amen. Please follow along as I read our passage this morning. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? 
They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is one of the glories of expositional preaching and one of the, you could say, headaches for pastors. Uh, this probably wouldn't be a passage you would jump to preach on a Sunday morning as a pastor. But in God's kindness and his wisdom, in the flow of his narrative in the Gospel of Mark, this is the next section. This is the next passage. And as we submit ourselves to the Word of God, and as we seek to studying it as it's laid out by the biblical authors, things like this come up. And it's important for us to take a moment to reflect, to study, and to submit ourselves to what the Word of God says. I think it's interesting in God's timing that we are looking at this passage here this morning. And the title of my message is this, One Man, One Woman, One Lifetime. When the broader world around us is celebrating something called Pride Month. I'm sure you've seen it on social media, perhaps at stores or out and about. The rainbow flag promoting the alternative lifestyle uh, that is so prevalent in our world today of those who claim homosexuality and the other following initials is to be accepted and to be welcomed and to be affirmed. Even if you may not agree that you should give them credence. But as we look here at this passage, yes, we will speak of divorce here in a moment. But this is the greater reality, is that Jesus quotes from Genesis. And as Jesus is God, he affirms this, that marriage is between one man and one woman for one lifetime. And there are nuances to this discussion that we'll see here in regards to divorce. And we'll lay out the historical context and such. But the overarching idea, this, this is God's plan from the beginning. And it's this, our big idea, that marriage is a sacred institution established by God with the intention of it lasting permanently. Marriage is a sacred institution. It's not something that man came up with, but God came up with it. It's a sacred institution established by God with the intention of it lasting permanently. As we look at this passage, obviously the topic that comes up is marriage and divorce and remarriage. And this is a difficult subject. Most of us in some way have been impacted by this. Whether it's you as an individual, whether it's a relative, a close friend, extended family member, divorce has impacted us as a culture and as individuals in many different ways. And so we need to have grace and patience and humility as we look at this passage, as we inspect our own hearts, and as we interact with others about this topic. But let's look here at what Jesus is talking about and what he is really getting at in his response to the Pharisees. Because this doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's a context here 
that the Pharisees are trying to exploit uh, that gives some understanding to us as we look at Jesus' comments. So let's look here at Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. We're going to look at four different things. First off, the historical context. We're going to look at, secondly, the Old Testament references that Jesus uses. Then we're going to look at Jesus' teaching, or in a sense, his application of those passages. And then fourthly, what does this mean for us today, an application for today? Let's remind ourselves where we are at in the flow of Mark's gospel. Jesus has been teaching and preaching, doing miracles. And really, we've come to this point in the gospel where it's come to the the top of the mountain, right? Literally and figuratively. The top of the mountain was the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus' glory is revealed. Uh, The three inner disciples saw Jesus in all of his splendor, along with Elijah and Moses. And they see how Jesus is the greatest prophet, how he is the true son of God, as God the Father himself says, this is my beloved son. And what are they supposed to do? Listen to him. He is the great prophet. He is the fulfillment of all that has come before Jesus is. And to be a follower of Jesus means that we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow after him. That taking up our cross is not the bearing of annoyances in our life, but rather it's an identification with Jesus and who he is and his teaching and what he calls us to his disciples. So everything now is flowing down from that moment as Jesus slowly begins to make the march to Jerusalem. And in this passage, we're going to see Jesus coming down from the north of Galilee down to the area of uh, Judea and around Jerusalem. He's getting closer and closer to his coming death. And as he makes his way, he speaks about discipleship, of what it means to follow him, and about how following after Jesus heightens different things. Things are increased. So if you're a father or a mother or a husband or a wife, and you are a follower of Jesus, the responsibilities you have in those roles are not diminished as a follower of Jesus, those aren't important, I'm following Jesus, but rather they are heightened because you are a follower of Jesus. And we start here by looking at the issue of marriage. So let's look here at the historical context of this passage. It says that they left there, meaning the north, and went to the region of Judea, in verse 1, and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So Jesus comes to the south, and he's on the other side of the Jordan. This would be uh, to the east of the Jordan. And this would be a mix of Jew and Gentile. This is often referred to as the area of Perea, P-E-R-E-A. And it's controlled by Herod and uh, Antipas. Now, if you remember a little bit earlier in the account of the Gospel of Mark, Herod Antipas, uh, who was a descendant of Herod the Great from the beginning of the the Gospels, when Jesus was born, um, had an interesting situation in which he married his sister-in-law. And there was a lot of crossover there in the descendants of Herod, and it's a big mess, and it's kind of disgusting when you think about it, uh, the family tree and how its its, uh, branches are very much intertwined in odd ways. And so this is where Jesus is at, and that's a big deal because the Jews did not like Herod, 
And John spoke against what Herod had done in marrying his sister-in-law, that this was in the minds of the people. And in verse 2 it says, The Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? These Pharisees are not generally interested in what Jesus had to say. Has somebody ever asked you a question and they don't really care about the answer? They just want to get you in trouble? That's frustrating, right? You know their motives behind asking a question. Uh, You know that they don't really care what you're going to answer. They're just trying to entrap you. And this is, this is the Pharisees' MO. This is, this is how they operate. They come to Jesus with something that on the surface looks spiritual or looks like it would be important to God's people, but really they're just seeking to get Jesus entwined in this debate and argument that really leads to nowhere. And this is what they've done. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This is the question that is raised. And what's implied in this question is this, not just simply the idea of divorce, but what constitutes a valid or legitimate uh, dissolution of a marriage in the eyes of God and in the law of Moses? So this question is more than just, can anybody be divorced? But what grounds? What is allowed? Because actually, as we look here at the historical context, that marriage was, or excuse me, divorce was readily accepted in the Jewish culture in the first century. Now, in my mind, I didn't think that that would be the case. But as I studied and read different authors and read some histories of the first century, it really was an accepted practice that divorce was allowed. And there were two schools of thought amongst the rabbis in the Jewish nation. There were two schools of thought. The first one was the Shammai school, and the second was the Hillel school. These are different positions on this topic. The Shammai school was much more conservative, you could say, or restrictive in what they allowed. In that way of thinking, they believed that the only grounds for divorce was because of adultery. So if someone in the marriage relationship committed adultery, that was the only grounds for divorce while the Hillel school was the much more wide open accepting to where really there was any, any reason you could come up with was accepted, almost as if a no-fault divorce was allowed. It was really interesting, some of the comments from the rabbis. If a wife burned a meal, it was grounds for divorce. If a husband found someone fairer than she, meaning his wife, that was grounds for a divorce. If a male child was not uh, provided by the wife, that was grounds for a divorce. It was really wide open as to what constituted an appropriate dissolution of marriage. And so these are the warring factions. And this, this is the conversation that the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus trapped in. They're trying to get him involved in this dispute among these different schools of thought and, and what he would say. And Jesus, one, being God, but two, being wise to their schemes, rises above it like he does all the time. They seek to to entrap Jesus in this discussion of of what constitutes an allowable divorce and, and, and all these different things that go along with it. And Jesus takes the conversation. He says, you're missing the point. 
Pharisees, you're missing the point. You need to lift your eyes higher. You're getting wrapped up into what is allowed to dissolve a marriage when you need to realize that marriage was never meant to be dissolved in the first place. You are focusing on the results of the hard-heartedness of man and sin and forgetting what God has actually called you to. They sought to trap Jesus in this debate. Some suggest that perhaps because of the area that they were in with Herod ruling over it, that if Jesus spoke out against divorce, that Herod would come for Jesus' head next. That's one uh, thought. Whatever the reason, the question betrays the Pharisees and it demonstrates their true heart. They treat marriage as a disposable contractual agreement. Marriage is good for procreation, for continuing the nation of Israel, perhaps the hope of a male heir, and the opportunity to promote oneself through familial ties. That's really what they boiled marriage down to. This is the situation that Jesus finds himself in. They're trying to trap him in this discussion of what's allowed and what's not. And Jesus sees through their foolishness and he asks them a question and then points them to scripture. So let's look at these Old Testament references that Jesus points them to. So they asked the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, well, what did Moses command you? So Jesus points them back to who? Moses, the Pharisees' favorite person from the Old Testament. The law of Moses, right? They loved Moses. He was, in a sense, their hero. And what he said goes, right? The law of Moses. And so they would know what Moses said, and Jesus knows what they know that Moses says, but he wants to get their attention. So in verse four, it says, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So let's, let's look at this passage. If you want to take in your Bibles and flip to Deuteronomy 24, verses one through four. Deuteronomy 24, verses one through four. This is, in a sense, their proof text as Pharisees for what is allowed as a legitimate divorce. So as you find your way to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, this is what Moses wrote as he speaks or recounts the law of God. He says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So as you read that, you stop and you think, what in the world is going on? <laughs> what is Moses talking about here? So Moses is speaking about granting a certificate of divorce. And the reason here, it says, has found some indecency in her. That in, the word indecency means unrighteousness or uncleanness. So it's something in regard to the law of Moses. Now, some might say, well, it's adultery. 
Well, yes, that would make her indecent. But do you know what the result of adultery was according to the law of Moses? The adulterer and the adulteress would be stoned. <laughs> so there was no need to discuss that in regards to divorce because that was the result of that sin. So this indecency is in relation to some aspect of worship, of, of being unclean. And he says that if a man puts his wife away, gives her a certificate of divorce, and she remarries, and her present husband dies, her remarried husband, she may not remarry, and it's kind of this confusing back and forth. So what's going on? One author says this to help us understand. He says, The intent of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to fold, was manifold. Most obviously, it discouraged hasty divorces by requiring a man to stipulate a reason for divorce in writing. So you have to have a legitimate reason and also by prohibiting him from remarrying his divorced wife. The certificate of divorce guaranteed the divorcee at least a modicum of dignity and the right to remarry another man if she chose. It thus safeguarded the rights of the woman as much as possible in a patriarchal, patriarchal culture. Although divorce did entail a stigma since a priest was forbidden from marrying a divorcee, and a second marriage, quote-unquote, defiled a man's first wife, thus making it impossible for him to remarry her. Thus, as originally intended, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, did not encourage divorce, but rather attempted to preserve an equitable ruling in the unfortunate event of divorce. So what is Moses talking about? He is setting up stipulations that cause any individual who's thinking about going through this process to think that there are consequences that are associated with this, that things would be difficult, that there would be consequences that if uh, going through with this would cause difficulty in their life. Why? Because it wasn't God's plan. Moses allowed this, and Jesus is going to speak about this in verse 5. He says, because of the hardness of, of heart, he wrote you this commandment. God, in his sovereignty, when he was giving the law to Moses and establishing uh, marriage, didn't say, well, this is what I want for marriage, but it's not going to work out, so I'm going to give this out, this way of, quote-unquote, getting out of marriage. That wasn't God's plan. That wasn't, you know, what he intended from the beginning, but it was something that he condescended to do because of the sinfulness and hardness of heart. That's what Jesus says right here. The use of Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 to 4 as a descriptor of a proper approach to marriage and divorce is wrong. The Pharisees have taken this passage that was to be a warning against the difficulties and consequences of divorce and then have used it as, hey, this is something that we should do and we should allow. Rather than viewing it as a warning and demonstration of the consequences. It's a passage speaking of God's concession to divorce and not as something he desires or intends. As a parent interacting with a child, there are some things I want my child to do and I tell them, this is what I want you to do. Sometimes they do something and it's not necessarily wrong or bad, but it's not the best. I say, well, I, I guess so. I condescend. I, I grant them concession that it's not what I would have chosen, but it's not necessarily wrong. I can see, okay, I'm going to allow you. God condescends to allow this 
to happen because of the hardness and sinfulness of man. One author says it this way about the misuse of this by the Pharisees. <laughs> it's really quite funny how he uses different examples. He says, you do not learn to fly an airplane by following the instructions for making a crash landing. You will not be successful in war if you train by the rules for beating a retreat. The same is true of marriage and divorce. The exceptional measures necessary when a marriage fails are of no help in discovering the meaning and intention of marriage from the beginning. Jesus endeavors to recover God's will for marriage, not to argue about possible exceptions to it. His opponents ask what is permissible. He points to what is commanded. Deuteronomy 24, he argues, is not a pretext for divorce, but an attempt to limit its worst consequences for women. The divine intention for marriage cannot be determined from a text about the concession of divorce. They, Jesus, or excuse me, the Pharisees, are focusing on a sense of how you crash land a plane rather than focusing on how to make it fly well. And Jesus confronts them with these other verses from the Old Testament. If you want to flip to Genesis 1, these were some of our memory verses this week in our uh, uh, Vacation Bible School. Genesis 1.27, he says, God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female. Verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus quotes Genesis 1.27, which is also repeated in Genesis 5.2. So, God made them male and female. Why is this important? Well, he is setting the stage and he's pointing to something that is, in a sense, greater than the law of Moses. There are patterns in Scripture that predate the law of Moses. In the mind of the Pharisees, everything go, goes back to the, the law. But Jesus says there are things instituted by God that predate the law of Moses, like creation, the law of creation. And what is established there? Marriage, right? One man and one woman. God made Adam. And from Adam, he made Eve. And he says, God made them male and female. God didn't let them choose what they wanted to be. He made them male and female. This was God's plan from the very beginning. And it has been that way for since the beginning, however many thousands of years. And unfortunately, some people who think they are really smart think that we can redefine all that right now when that's not the case. From the beginning, Jesus says he made them male and female. Why is that important? Because male goes with female. Adam named all the animals and he didn't find a helper suitable. So God made him Eve. Adam and Eve. And Jesus says here, quoting uh, from Genesis 2, 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I think this is interesting. Somebody might say, well, of course Adam and Eve got together. They saw the animals and they were the only ones compatible. I don't see marriage here. Well, I do. Because in Genesis 2.24, God says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. Did Adam have a father and mother? No. Did Eve have a father and mother? No. God knew that as they procreated and that different generations would come about, that the pattern would be to leave and cleave. 
that Adam and Eve didn't just find their way together, but rather he put them together. That from one family, from another family, there would be a new family. Shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Jesus is demonstrating what God has commanded since before the law of Moses, all the way back to the beginning of creation. One man and one woman for one lifetime. It says they are no longer two, but one flesh. This phrase refers to several things. One, it refers to the physical union of marriage. Two become one. But also the identification. You have someone from this family and someone from this family, and they come together to start their own family. Two become one. It's a new identity. And this is to last forever. Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Verse nine, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Or one of the great uh, older terms, let no man tear asunder, right? You've heard that before in, in the wedding vows. What God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. That's the idea of rip apart or to tear apart. And what Jesus is doing here is telling the, uh, telling the Pharisees, listen, you're looking for all these excuses to be divorced. I'm telling you, don't worry about that. Worry about the command from God of what marriage is supposed to be. It's not just this contractual agreement and arrangement, but rather it's a, it's a holy union between one man and one woman before God for one lifetime. And because God has put them together in that covenant of marriage, nobody is to tear it apart. Nobody. Jesus is saying, hey, guess what? You, in a sense, are not the ones who oversee marriage, but God is. Jesus calls them to a higher standard of what marriage means and in doing so displays their own hardness of heart that leads to divorce. Jesus is heightening the law and we see that, right? Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, obviously, do not commit adultery. Do not do that physical act. He says, but if you lust after another in your own heart, that's committing adultery. Do not commit murder. But if you hate someone in your heart, that is the same as committing murder. What does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't come and do away with the law, but Jesus comes and he fulfills the law and he actually heightens it. He raises it to the next level. And he says, no, 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 don't even think about committing adultery or murder because even if you think about it, that's still sin. The law of Christ is higher than the law of Moses. It is heightening everything that has come before. And Jesus says, don't worry about divorce. You should focus on being committed to marriage as God has designed it. And so this is what he says. Therefore, what God has put together, let no man separate. Verse 10, Jesus has explained his teaching here a little bit more. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to the willy-nilly, find any excuse whatsoever to be divorced. And Jesus says, with this flippant attitude towards marriage, and if someone is divorced and they remarried, you see here, he says, they're committing sin again. They're committing adultery. Jesus here has heightened the role of marriage. The thrust of Jesus' teaching is not simply to prescribe marriage, or remarriage after divorce, 
but to deny the Pharisees' presumption for divorce in any case. And this is important for us. Jesus is speaking against the approach that commitment in marriage is just merely a suggestion or only if it works out for both parties. Jesus is reminding his disciples and the Pharisees of the commitment that is involved in marriage and how important it is and how it is God's design. And when God's design is broken down, what results is sin and suffering and difficulty in life. Consequences from sinful choices. That's what Jesus lays out here. Jesus is saying, if you are a follower of me, Marriage is more than just this contractual arrangement, but it's designed by God from the beginning of creation, and God is the one who oversees it. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, that means your responsibility in it is one of following God through your marriage, of being forgiving, of being self-sacrificial, of loving and understanding, seeking the betterment and good of your spouse over yourself. So what does this mean for us today? As we think of marriage and divorce and everything that goes with it. Four thoughts here. First off, marriage is one of the foundational relationships in all of creation. One man, one woman, one lifetime. It's clear and we must take the Bible at its word. That's God's design, that's God's plan, that's what God wants from us. Especially in the backward world in which we live now. It's not a suggestion, but it's a clear command and definition of what marriage is and how God has designed it. One man, one woman, one lifetime. Secondly, the call of following Christ impacts our marriages and our marriage relationships. Marriage is hard. Even when it's two believers united together in marriage, the sin nature is still present. And the honeymoon wears off. And the annoyances come out. And the comments and the frustrations of not doing things my way or as I would do them come out. But what is needed, if you are a follower of Christ, that's why I had us read from Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, that wives are to respect and submit to their husbands. And husbands are to lead and to love their wives as Christ does that for the church. The two-way street of that marriage relationship. Forgiveness, patience, grace, long-suffering, and understanding that marriage is given by God. And marriage is one of the main tools in the relationship of a husband and wife that God uses to make us holy. Marriage isn't necessarily about making us happy. It's about making us holy of making us more like Jesus Christ. But in doing so, in sacrifice and working at our marriages, there is joy that results in that close relationship between husband and wife. The issue in Jesus' day was that divorce was seen as an easy solution to relationships that were making someone unhappy. And Jesus says, no, if you are a follower of Christ, marriage is something you must work on for it's from God and overseen by him. Third, as Jesus communicates here, that divorce should be avoided at all costs. But we don't look at the topic of divorce from just only this one passage. We need to look at it in the context of the rest of Scripture. So Matthew 19 is a parallel passage, and Paul also speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 7. 
divorce should be avoided at all costs. But we understand, and it is clear, that there may be extreme cases that would lead to a divorce. I mentioned Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. They both speak of circumstances involving unrepentant adultery and an abandonment as legitimate reasons. And of course, we also need to be aware of the physical welfare of spouses. And that must be taken into consideration as well. That we care and we listen and we love. And I'm thankful for our own church's policy on divorce and remarriage in our statement of faith. I think it's a wonderfully biblical and faithful approach to it. Understanding that there are extreme circumstances that allow the necessity of divorce in different circumstances. Fourth, throughout this entire discussion, humility and grace and patience are necessary in any discussion regarding divorce and those who have been impacted by it, whether directly or indirectly. This is a difficult topic and has been affected so many in so many different ways. And it's important for us to remember this is not the unpardonable sin. There may be perhaps somebody who was divorced before they even knew Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's not an unpardonable sin. There might be circumstances in one's walk with God where they weren't walking with God and decisions were made and divorce resulted. That's not an unpardonable sin. God's grace and his forgiveness is enough to cover any sin, including divorce. And my heart is that we are a church that does not judge harshly, but seeks to understand graciously, while still holding the sanctity of marriage in high regard and understanding the plan that God has for us. And I'm going to add one more here because I can. Fifth, as you seek to intermarriage, understand what that all entails. That's not a decision to be made lightly. That's not something to be rushed into. Will you ever be ready for marriage? No, you're never ready for marriage. But there are things in your life that should be right. There are relationships in your life that should be correct. There should be a circumstances of life that should lend themselves to being ready for marriage. Most of all, your own walk with God your relationship with your own parents, your relationship with a local church, and understanding that the commitment that you are jumping into is a serious commitment before God that's to last for a lifetime. One concluding quote here as we wrap up our time thinking about this topic and this passage. An author says this, the essential thrust of Mark 10 verses 1 through 12 is the inviolability of marriage as intended and instituted by God. Jesus does not conceive of marriage on the ground of its dissolution, but on the grounds of its architectural design and purpose by God. Human failure does not alter that purpose. The intent of Jesus' teaching is not to shackle those who fail in marriage with debilitating guilt. The question is not whether God forgives those who fail in marriage. The answer to that question is assured in Mark 3, verse 28. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. There is, after all, no instance in Scripture of an individual seeking forgiveness and being denied it by God. The question in our day of impermanent commitments and casual divorce is whether we as Christians will hear the unique call of Christ to discipleship and marriage. In marriage, 
as in other areas to which the call of Christ applies? Will we seek relief in what is permitted or commit ourselves to what is intended by God and commanded by Christ? Will we fall away in trouble and difficulty or follow Jesus in the costly journey of discipleship, even in marriage? Will we sunder the divine union of two become one flesh or will we honor and nurture marriage as a gift and creation of God? Being a follower of Jesus calls us to a higher standard. And may we seek that standard and with God's help, seek to heed it and live it and share it with the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for these difficult things that you cause us to think through. Lord, I pray for those here who have been impacted by divorce, either directly or indirectly. Lord, that your spirit would minister to them and the wounds which can go deep. May they find release and relief and peace in Jesus. None of us are without sin, and this sin is not any more extreme than anything else that we could commit. Yes, it's difficult, and yes, it bears consequences. Lord, but you still forgive. Lord, those who have faced difficulties, Lord, I pray that they would find their rest in you. And may we look to Christ, who is the head of the church, who is the husband, the bridegroom, the perfect spouse for us as the church. And may we find our satisfaction in him. May we as a church help marriages grow and to flourish, come alongside those who are struggling. May we be open and honest about our struggles with those who are mature believers who can help us. And Lord, may we do this for your honor and your glory, understanding that you are a good and kind and gracious God. Lord, we love you. May we seek to submit ourselves to you and your will. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Thank you very much for being